A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. WBZ Chicago, it's This American Life. Okay, so going down the stairs uh, to walk the dog. Reluctant to use the elevator today because there are explosions in my area. Mostly pretty rare ones, but over the last hour, maybe more frequent. This is recorded in Kyiv by a woman named Katya. And it takes you into the everydayness of this war in this very intimate, three-dimensional way. I'm going to play you a bit more of this before I say more about it. And I already have noticed that the best way to know if they are really close is to, you know, observe the birds. If the birds start, like, panicking and, like, flying away, that means that explosion is probably um, relatively close. Oh, here, there was another one. Um... I really need to have my dog pee. Um, there is a beep of the door. And so day, I think, second of the war. I think it was February 25th. There was shooting that I could hear from three directions. And then when I came home, almost immediately, I heard this loud metallic noise. And I looked out the window and there was a tank driving along my building. So there is a, 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 a dig in the ground where Russian tank was driving and my dog is considering peeing on it right now, which is frankly hilarious. But if you go along them, you can clearly see, okay, the birds are flying. I think I will, um, I will uh, try to head back in direction, in general direction of my house. I'm sorry, my dog is stubborn. He doesn't want to. He, I think he wants to go poop. <sighs> Risking my life for you, asshole. Um, no, he's not an asshole. He's a very sweet and kind dog. He is very, very calm about the... Okay, I'm going home because this one was really loud. Katja actually recorded these for the Vice News Reports podcast starting at the beginning of the war. She asked that um, they and we not say her last name or what part of the city she's in or what kind of job she does, other than it's an education. War is personal. We don't usually talk about it that way, but Ukraine had over 40 million people at the start of the war. And there are just all kinds of ways that they're going through it. On all sorts of front lines. For Katya, the front line has been a bunch of different things, but one of them is her decision to stay in Kyiv with her parents. Her dad's 87, her mom's 73, both have medical issues. My dad has cancer. Uh, he's not treatable, basically not treatable anymore. He's also almost completely blind. And so he's basically lying in bed the entire day, apart from walking along the corridor a little bit and eating. And he's listening to, ra- to radio. Uh, my mom... Uh, has diabetes. She also has trouble walking. They are choosing to stay here because they can't just go to the bomb shelter back and forth all the time. And we're just hoping for the best. She shops for them, stays up nights to help her dad with whatever he needs. At this stage of his illness, she says, he wouldn't be as comfortable anywhere as he is in this apartment. She does a, a bunch of different stuff in these audio diaries. Uh, like, she gives a tour of their apartment, uh, which includes a stop at this big bag in the hallway with stuff that she's packed if they need to flee. Inside my backpack, I have documents. I have some of my clothes, headlight. Um, I have, I think I have some of my underpants. Uh, okay, going farther through my corridor, there is a spot where I sleep because it has wall on one hand, and it has big wardrobe on the other. I think it's, maybe apart from the bathroom, is the best option to survive in case of blast. There's an audio diary that she does where her dad is listening to a radio report where people on the radio are explaining what taxes they do and do not need to pay right now that the country is in a state of war. 
There's one more Katya notes that before the war, the hallway in her apartment building always smelled like weed because uh, that's where teenagers went to get high. Uh, but that hasn't been true since the war. And then uh, she records this one, I guess, uh, for her American listeners. Okay, there is an address by the president that was published exactly three minutes ago. So I'm going to watch it. I know that Zelensky is a bit of a uh, sex symbol in the West right now, so I hope this is a bit of an ASMR sesh for you as well. I'm sorry if this was way, too, way harsh of a joke. <laughs> dog, uh, Yoki, is in a bunch of these audio diary entries. In one of them, uh, she talks about how they bought some canned dog food for him, which luckily he likes. He's apparently kind of a finicky eater. But now uh, the cans are running out, and they're not sure what they're going to find to replace him with. Today we gave him one can in the morning, and in the evening my mom said that maybe uh, we should, you know, don't give him, like, his second meal to spread out, say, spread out, you know, the the food supplies for him that we have and um my dad he just wanted to eat uh, kefir which i don't know if you're familiar with it's a kind of sour milk um drink he drank maybe half of it maybe a little bit more than half of it and he just said give the rest to the dog and this was uh, heartbreaking uh, my 87-year-old dad, him in his condition, he giving half of his dinner to the dog. It's just, fuck, Russian worship, go fuck yourself. In a war, the front line is everywhere, every place the war touches. And right now people are navigating their own small struggles in the shadow of this huge one. In putting together today's show, I thought about Studs Terkel's book, uh, The Good War. I don't know if you know this one. He tries to document World War II, but not talking about it as, like, history with a capital H, but just he does interviews, just these great interviews with all sorts of people who lived through the war. Today's show, kind of like that. Anyway, stay with us. Akwan, give Kenya and her neighbors. So one of the things that made us want to do a show of personal stories from this war was reading these diaries that Yevgenia Belarusitz has been publishing. She's a writer and a photographer in Kiev, and after the Russians invaded, when she'd go out to take pictures, she would be told over and over to put away her camera. People didn't know, are you a spy? They didn't want to be photographed. So instead, she started writing about the interactions that she was having with people and putting them into Der Spiegel magazine. Kiev uh, was nowhere as violent or as dangerous as certain other cities in Ukraine, but everybody was still living in this city that was transformed by the war and figuring out how to deal with that. In the diaries, Yevgenia says over and over, in different ways, is this really happening? Even just a week or two into the war, she writes about how it feels like it's been going on forever. She gave us permission to excerpt the diaries here, the read first by actress Ivana Sakhno. They begin on February 24th, the day of the invasion, day one, and then proceed day by day. Day two, day three, which is where we'll pick them up. Day three. My first night in a bomb shelter. It is one and a half floors deep underground, to be precise. A network of corridors and corridors. At the dark entrance to our basement, I see the silhouettes of residents scurrying past each other. You can overhear the occasional petty arguments. Two older shadows pass by two younger ones. Good evening. But the evening is not good. The younger ones protest. We wish you a good evening anyway, the older ones say in triumphant tone, because we mean well, and we will continue to wish it. The shadows disappear into the depths of the cellar. As I write, it occurs to me that during the day I saw many smiling people. For example, a woman who was sitting in the park on a bench next to two shopping bags. She spoke to me in an absurdly happy voice, saying that she was waiting for her nephew to help her carry the bags home. I'm so happy to have you standing next to me now, talking to me. When there are two of us, I'm less afraid of the artillery. 
Day 5. Almost all pharmacies are closed. Electricity, water, and heating are under constant threat of failure. The public spaces, squares, streets in the city are empty. I accompanied a German friend who could not stay in Kiev to the railway depot. A journey of 25 minutes, which for me was a walk into another vast reality. Since the beginning of the war, I have not visited Shevchenko Boulevard, a wide street leading down to the depot. We walked along the street and every house, every intersection carried something new. A new language, a new narrative about our shared reality. The city looked peaceful. We quickly said goodbye and I strolled back alone. At about the same time, peaceful residents of the city of Berdansk in the south of the country were gathered in front of their local government building, which was occupied by Putin's army and guarded by armed soldiers. The woman shouted at the soldiers in Russian, How can you look your mothers in the face? You brought war and slaughter into our land. Shame on you. Old people were also in the crowd. They were not afraid. The soldiers looked demoralized. They replied, We came to protect you. The women resisted. They continued to protest. We were never in danger here. There was no threat to us before you came. Now, with you, because of you, we are in the greatest danger. Then came cursed insults, which have a very great richness in the Ukrainian and Russian languages. Day 6. It is the sixth day of the war, which I feel has already lasted 50 years. I went for a walk to breathe some fresh air on this first day of spring and maybe do some shopping. Knowing that many supermarket shelves were already empty, I decided to visit a larger grocery store that had recently opened not far from us. How pleasant it was to be there. The shopping hall is deep underground. Everyone felt safe and walked past the shelves with a slowness that has not been seen in Kiev for six days. On the way back, I took a picture of an old man sitting alone on a bench in the park. He wanted to talk to me. His wife was ill, he told me and he was taking care of her. He wanted to take care of her until tomorrow. Then he will join the Kiev Territorial Defense. He and his wife are 66 years old. In his youth, he served in the military. I started thanking him. I couldn't stop, as if that would prevent this elderly man caring for his sick wife from risking his life. Day nine. I woke up quite early in a bright mood and, with the feeling that this sunny day had something to offer me, little was left of the melancholy I felt yesterday. Then I discovered the reason for this change. I no longer believe in the war. It simply can't be, I thought. It isn't true. What neighboring country bombs a city to rubble in the 21st century? You can't occupy this country. It's unrealistic. The war is a dream, a dictator's fantasy. I wanted to see if the little store next to our house still had bread. I have not been able to get bread since the third day of the war. It is usually sold out. The store was full. With some amazement, I discovered a group who I took to be representatives of the international military. They spoke English and needed help translating. Then I realized that they were not soldiers, but unarmed if well-protected escorts of a war photographer who was also shopping in the store. I tried to help her choose a detergent. The small group exuded enthusiasm, humor, and inspiration. My mood suddenly darkened. One of the three escorts proudly said to me, Do you know who you're standing with? This is one of the best photographers in the world. The photographer laughed and shrugged it off. Please, she said. I'm embarrassed. Then she told me her name. I can't remember the name. I've been having a hard time concentrating lately. Then she said, You can follow me on Instagram. The group bought a lot of detergent, almost everything in the store. I told them good to have you with us and said goodbye but quickly an uneasiness came over me. I realized that it is not a good sign when a well-known war photographer sets up shop here. 
Day 12. I receive a utility bill from a cave apartment. It is accompanied by a telegram message that sounds like an apology. We are writing to you with a request. If your financial means allow, under the circumstances, please pay the utilities. Many cave utility workers joined the Ukrainian army and are now fighting for our freedom. However, it is still important to pay the bills. Day 17. It was a sleepless night. The air raid alarm, sounding its sirens over the city, kept me up all night. I was too tired to go to the shelter. I heard explosions and hoped that no one was injured. My plan for the day was to pick up my bulletproof vest, which had finally been delivered. Then I would visit a lady who, as a sort of concierge, watches over a house in the neighborhood and keeps an eye on the comings and goings. There are many such concierges in the city, but since the beginning of the war, this lady had taken on an additional task. She must make sure that nothing is stolen from the abandoned apartments. Her name had a comforting ring to it that reminded me of childhood. Dusia. One of the residents from her building, who had escaped, had asked me to check in on her, which made her happy. Because she's alone, no one can relieve her of her watch. She also lives in the building where she works. I visited her in her small concierge room on the first floor. There was only space for a table and a sofa. The TV was on. She said, So many people are escaping Kiev, but I have nowhere to go. In her face I saw helplessness, but she had made her decision to stay put. I tried to lighten the mood with some not entirely clever jokes. I was happy that she smiled at me, and I decided to visit her again soon. Day 24. Today an old couple made their way through the wreckage on C. Trifleman Street. They walked shakily past shards of broken glass and heaps of rubble. This elderly pair, who have lived their lives amid undying declarations of love between Russians and Ukrainians, two brotherly peoples, did not want to believe that fratricide was in full swing. The man, speaking to his wife, reproached an invisible enemy. Look how many windows, how much glass has been smashed. Jesus, they haven't thought about the fact that they'll have to clean this up. All this chaos just to say, the Russians did it to us. The man spoke desperately and with an honest sadness. The woman nodded and sighed. They walked straight past me. On the ground, pigeons pecked at breadcrumbs among the shards of glass. Despite the damage, a woman had come to the marketplace, as she does every day, to feed the birds. It was sunny and awfully quiet. The streets felt free, and there was a deceptive illusion that a long walk was safe. Day 26. I went to the train station with my mother to see if we could get train tickets for ourselves and our relatives. We walked through the old city that my mother had once shown me, like a story one reads to a child. The train station was not as crowded as we expected. All the shops had closed and the only tickets available were for the evacuation trains. Several of these tickets were standing room only, and because some of my relatives have health concerns that keep them from standing, we decided to look for tickets again later. My mother and I walked back down the street and tried to cheer each other up with a few jokes. Then we saw little yellow buses with red crosses heading toward us in the direction of the train station. On each bus was written Irpin, a place north of Kiev where so many artists and writers once lived and where now people die every day. Russia is annihilating the small town, block by block. In the dusty bus windows, we saw the gray, tired faces of old people and children, all staring somewhere far away into the distance. We stopped and looked. I could not take a photo. In the evening, I saw that the train tickets were being sold again. Without much time to consider it, I bought six tickets for Friday. My parents still don't want to leave Kiev. I really don't know what we should do. But there should be enough time before Friday to decide. Day 29. 
A little girl looked at me with a friendly expression. She was coloring the backrest of a wooden bench with a piece of chalk. She tried to tell me something, but she was interrupted by her grandfather, who seemed annoyed. Listen here, he said to me in a somewhat brazen voice. I told my daughter, let's buy the apartment in Kiev. But she replied, nobody wants to live in Kiev with its stuffy big city air. We should get a nice apartment under the green trees in Bucha, outside of Kiev. And being the foolish person I am, I agreed. He looked at me reproachfully, as if I were the one who had persuaded him to buy an apartment in a pleasant suburb now smothered in fire rockets and mortar shells. I didn't even want to talk to him at first, but he called out to me and asked to walk a few steps in his direction. It was already evening. Soon the curfew would begin. The air raid alarm had just sounded, and I thought I only had a few minutes for a little conversation. But then the men mentioned Bucha, and all of a sudden, I decided to spend as much time with them as they wanted. The girl, who was about six years old, told me in a serious voice, for two weeks we lived in the basement. We were 21 adults and seven children. The grandfather still seemed angry with me. I come from a city where most people speak Russian, I come from Dnipro, but part of our family lives here in Bucha and in Kiev. Two weeks in the basement with only water, some food, almost no heating and barely any electricity. Constant shelling, especially when we tried to sneak a little fresh air. And then they found us. The Russians came to us in the cellar and explained, no, they barked, that they had come to denazify us. If I were not 70 years old, I answered them. I would rather throw you out than talk to you. Don't speak to me, not even for a second. At the end, he got so furious that he said to me, you should go there, to Bucha. If you were there, you wouldn't look at me like that. You would understand everything. And here in Kiev, nothing has been made clear. Today, my childhood friend lost his family home. Early in life, I used to visit his house all the time. I tried to remember the rooms. I recall the traditional living room of a small house with a low ceiling, a resplendent cabinet with old photos behind a glass shelf, and the meals my friend's grandmother used to prepare for us. This memory is not accompanied by any feeling. Day 30. My relatives want to leave Kiev. We had already planned our exit. But as the day of departure ruthlessly approached, they had more and more complaints and objections. Here in Kiev, where every day you come across friends, acquaintances, and strangers you end up helping, you manage somehow to bear the unbearable news and events. We decided to postpone our departure for a few days and perhaps prepare a little better. On the way back from the train station, my mother and I met two people from the military who were sitting in front of a grocery store, drinking coffee. They showed us a picture of a boy, who was only 14 years old, posing in a uniform next to some soldiers. We're going to our military positions today to fetch him, one of the soldiers explained. He followed his father and wants to fight shoulder to shoulder with him, but he's too young. They have clearly lost everything, their house, their family. And now all he wants is to fight. We understand, of course, but cannot allow it. They were obviously proud, both of this mission and this boy's determination. They smiled with a little bit of tenderness. And their good mood even infected us. Ivana Sakno reading the diaries of Yevgenia Belarusets. She got out of Ukraine on day 41, April 4th. We first saw her diaries on the website Isolari. Yevgenia's diaries being published as part of a new book called In the Face of War. You can find links to all of that, as well as to some of Yevgenia's photography at our website, thisamericanlife.org. Coming up, so your friend's a Russian soldier being sent into Ukraine. What do you say to him exactly? It's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This American Life, Myra Glass. Today's program, 
the other front lines, stories of the many ways that people are going through the war in Ukraine. We have arrived at Act Two of our program, Act Two, Munichi and the Escape. So for years before this war, Ukraine had been a destination for foreign students, kids from Nigeria, Morocco, China, Azerbaijan, Turkey, India. The tuition's affordable. It's relatively easy to get a visa. You can study in English. So when the war started, 77,000 foreign students, just a ton of people, had to figure out what to do. Alexis Okeowo is a reporter who was based in Lagos for a few years. And over the last few weeks, they've been hearing about Nigerian students trapped in Ukraine, black students blocked at the border, unable to escape to the rest of Europe. Alexis also knew what an education in Ukraine had meant to those students. For lots of them, it was their one chance to get a degree. Back home in Nigeria, there aren't nearly enough seats in schools for everybody who wants them. If you do get in, your studies can be interrupted by long teacher strikes. Alexis wanted to talk to the students about what they were going through. Over the last month, as I read about the racism international students, especially African ones, were facing as they tried to leave Ukraine, I felt angry and sad and curious. Who were these kids caught in a war, and what had their lives been like in Ukraine? What would they be now? When I went to Ukraine, it was a very beautiful place. It was like uh, every, like every, everything is like organized. This is Munachi Nadi. He arrived in Ukraine last summer. Munachi is someone at ease with himself, gentle, with a really big smile, and he's a person who likes a plan, things to be in order. For instance, one thing he mentioned that he first noticed in Ukraine was how the cars were parked in straight lines. Out of all the Nigerian students I spoke with, Munachi had the most clarity about what he wanted to do with his life and why he was in Ukraine. He wanted to be a doctor and then work in the United States, the UK, or Switzerland. When Munachi landed in Ukraine, a Nigerian representative from his new university picked him up. They played Bob Marley as they drove through the city. And it was so beautiful, like, you know, the different people, the color and everything, the uh, waterfalls. Uh, it was so beautiful, like, new things to me. A lot of things were new. Munachi managed to get an apartment with other Nigerians in the southern city of Odessa, but he didn't know where to exchange money. A friend invited him to join a group chat on Telegram called Nigerian Students Ukraine. It's a big group. Over 1,000 Nigerians are in it. Reading through the messages, I was reminded they're college students trying to learn how to be adults. They're just kids, even though Munachi doesn't like me to call him that. Members helped each other find jobs and Nigerian restaurants. Do you have dollars and you need Grivna? DM me. Who's in for a shared apartment in Kharkiv? Abego. If you're looking for an unserious relationship, please just DM me. Single ladies only. Me. Job needed in Kharkiv. Anyone available or knows anyone to help, please? Are you interested in a modeling shoot in Kiev? Please send your picture for number and age if you're interested. Munachi settled in, started learning Ukrainian. I asked him what he did for fun. Well, actually, to be honest, like the parts I enjoy most is like being in school. Hmm. Yeah, being in school and doing what I love. I love um, anatomy. Uh, that's my favorite. It's very interesting. Like, you know, every day is getting interesting. You get to know human body, organs and all the rest. And I love it. You know, I go to libraries. I feel free. Um, yeah, I feel very free to do whatever I want. What he wanted to do was study. The thing he'd always wanted to do. Be a medical student. Uh, were you going to parties? Were you dating? No. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> no, because uh, there's a saying like, um, student, like medical students, uh, they say study now and love later. <laughs> <laughs> Love later, okay. Yeah. <laughs> How old are you again, Munachi? Huh? I'm 23 now. Oh, you're 23. Okay, okay. Six months after Munachi arrived in Ukraine, in January, P. 
people in the Nigerian student chat began asking, what's up with the Russians? Munachi's phone buzzed constantly with notifications. He'd sometimes wake up to hundreds of missed messages in the group. Hi, please, any more info about the war? They're trying to resolve it diplomatically. I don't know if it's true, oh. Not true. True. I don't believe this because if Putin is waiting for marshlands to get frozen, that means he will wait till another winter and this one is basically over. People just be putting fear in others. Stay safe though. Damn, I like your analysis, girl. Very apt. All I came here to do was study. I feel your pain, bro. Laughing emoji, laughing emoji. Anybody get malaria drugs? Russians only moved their army closer. Shit didn't happen. Find way, move to western part of Ukraine, and stay there. The west is already bordered by Russian soldiers through Belarus. That's the north-northeast. LOL, bro. Everybody done turned geographer. I was, like, telling all the students, like, whoa, you guys don't need to panic. Like, I don't believe there will be war. Uh, we don't need to spread panic. Let's just... Because the school told us not to spread panic, like... I was telling them to chill, let's get every information from the school. But Munachi says there was almost no information from the school or from the Nigerian embassy. Very quickly, the chat turned from looking for flatmates to trying to escape war. Is it just me that heard those sounds? Yes, just now, here in Kyiv. Me too. I'm hearing the same sounds, oh, boom, boom. If you see the last one shake my window, my heart first stop. Stay safe, my brothers. Guys, real missile oh. I'm hearing something from my hostel. Even the ambassador of Nigeria has gone back home. Border's no safe again, oh. Guys, please, which way now? I'm scared. I'm fucking scared. Find your way to Poland and leave. Please, would they allow us to enter Poland? They accept Ukrainians now. How can we get from Lviv to Kyiv? Everything is down. Fastest way is metro, but to my knowledge, that is also down. Munachi was reading these messages, but he kept coming up with reasons why he couldn't leave yet. He needed to buy chicken, eggs, tomatoes, apples, juice, milk, and ice cream to fill his fridge. Then he couldn't leave because he had a fridge full of food. He still thought maybe the war would pass. But overall, Munachi says he didn't leave because it would mean abandoning his plan. He wanted to follow the rules, look to an authority for direction. Then there was an explosion at Odessa seaport. So Munachi took a train to Lviv. Then he went to the platform for the train to Poland, where he found other Africans waiting in the crowd. But the conductor and a police officer were not letting black people onto the train. He watched as some of them started arguing with the officer blocking the door. Why? What's going on? Why are you not letting us in? This is not good. This is bad. You want us to die? You know? The police was like, wait, wait, wait. And we are still waiting. Like Some Africans forced themselves onto the train. But Munachi was told to wait. So he waited until the conductor closed the doors and the train, with empty seats, left without him. Yeah, and there was a lot of people, so I, I gave up. He got a taxi with other Africans to drive to the Polish border. But at a certain point, the traffic just stopped moving. So he walked for more than an hour to the crossing and stood in line. So when it got to my turn, <laughs> the, the, border, the border guard told me to go back. And how, how long had you been waiting? I've been waiting for like um, maybe two hours. Yeah, and, and, he, and he told me to go back. What did you say? How did you react? I, I just I just go back. You didn't say why? <laughs> I didn't know what to say. Just go back. Mm. And I was like, I don't want to feel so embarrassed. So I just go back. It was a very, it, it was so embarrassing. When you say that word, embarrassing, what do you mean by it? For example, in the midst of crowd and others are going in, and mm -hmm. 
you are restricted from going in. People will look at you. I felt like I want to cry. You know, at that point, I, I feel like I wanted to cry. I feel like, wow, this is it. Wow. I felt so bad. So I said, okay, let me go back. Let me go back. At the back of the line, Munachi met some Africans and an Indian man who said the border guards were going to let them die in Ukraine. The man advised Munachi to try to get someone with a car to take him across. Munachi saw there were long lines of cars passing through. He began hailing them down and asking for a ride, politely, pleadingly. He even offered to pay. Help us, like, maybe you have a free car. It's your car, I know, but, you know, you need to understand. You just help us. You're almost there. Just drive us in, something like that. And we just came in peace. And they all, all of them said no. Yeah, all of them said no. No, no. It, it felt so bad. And the way they say it, like, to hurt you. No, no, no. Everyone the same. Uh... No one wanted to help. Yeah. Was it surprising to you that so many Ukrainians were saying no, 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 no? Uh, to me, first, I, I was thinking it was a very easy something for people to do in, in this kind of situation. My teachers are Ukrainians and they are so friendly and nice to us. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I actually thought maybe I'll find, I'll find my teacher like, oh my God. She will help me or something, or he will help me, something like that. I was, I was only, I was only like wishing to see someone that I know mm. that will just help me. I, I have to go back, maybe find a place to stay. Then tomorrow I might try again. Mm-hmm. So I had to walk back again. An hour. Yeah, an hour again. It was so far, and, but. I felt I was so I was so sad, so mm. it it was very easy for me because I was sad. <laughs> yeah, I was sad. I was so sad. Like I wasn't even looking at anybody's face. I, I hated everyone at that moment. What do I have to do? I don't know what to do. Like it was already twelve in the night. And it was so cold, so cold, like, oh my God. Munachi says that on his walk back, he remembers that he stopped feeling like himself. His entire world, everything he thought he knew about Ukraine, was thrown into chaos. Nothing was organized. The Ukrainians he lived among were now treating him like an alien, even an enemy, because he wasn't the right color. Munachi saw himself one way, hardworking, quiet, friendly, and soon realized, during the worst moments of his life, that others were seeing him in a very different way. The people who wouldn't give him a ride, who wouldn't let him cross the border, to them, his life seemed to be worth less than theirs. He finally reaches a hotel, but the clerk says there are no rooms. But this time, Munachi did not just accept what he was told. Munachi calls his cousin in the United States. His cousin gets a friend who speaks Ukrainian to talk to the hotel clerk, and the friend is able to book a room over the phone. So how come there was suddenly a room? <laughs> That's the big <sighs> question. Well, you know, I gave the lady a very big smile. <laughs> because... <laughs> <laughs> and like God, like finally, like, oh, you see. <laughs> the next day, Munachi tried again. He made his way back to the border and could finally cross to Poland. Less than a week later, he moved on to Berlin. I was in Berlin last month as thousands of refugees from Ukraine came through Central Station and went on to various hostels. The Ukrainians I talked to told me they had no plans. They just wanted their home to be safe again so they could return as soon as possible. But the foreign students, like Munachi, are in a different situation. 
Ukrainian citizens can get temporary residence in the European Union. Foreign students cannot, even though they're living alongside Ukrainian refugees. They just fled the same war. The students either have to go back to their home countries or hope that the countries they fled to will allow them to stay and finish the educations they came for. Munachi is currently in his third hostel in Germany. He's been sharing a room with another refugee, learning another new language, and waiting to hear if the German government will let him stay in the country. He and other international students there have until August to get accepted to a German school and prove they have at least 10,000 euros to pay for a year of living costs. Otherwise, they will be required to leave. That's money a lot of students don't have. Munachi is trying to finish up this year's classes online, but it hasn't been easy. He left his school books in Poland. It's still surreal that he's even in this situation. The 1,000 people in the Nigerian students' group chat are now scattered. But people are still posting, checking in on one another, and helping each other figure out their next steps. Please, who is in Poland here? I have my dog stocked in Lviv. It can be sent to you so you can help me give it to someone coming to Nigeria. Please, I don't want them to die. Hello, has anyone gotten into Ireland between yesterday and today? Most countries are closing their border now. Anybody know anyone or news from France? Are they deporting people in France? Anybody in Belgium? What's the update, people? Hope you all are safe. It's an uneasy limbo these students are in. In order to finish their degrees in Europe, they're signing up for an immediate future of moving from place to place, of starting all over again and again. Here's what Munachi is thinking about. I asked myself, oh, what does it feel like to be a war student? What if like, I'm a doctor? What would I like, be doing in, in a situation like this if, 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 I'm, if, I, if my help is needed? Something like that. I, 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 I don't know if you understand. I do understand. Munachi is spinning through all the identities he's both imagined for himself and experience medical student, doctor, and now, student during wartime. But I noticed there was one word he wasn't using. Do you feel like a refugee? <laughs> this is the feelings I don't want to have. Mm. <laughs> Even when you say like, me as a refugee, I was like trying to dodge it. To mm -hmm. be honest, yes. Like my friend told me like, oh bro, we are now refugees. Like, when we came here, I said, no, bro, maybe you, not me. <laughs> but why Why do you not feel like a refugee? I don't want to feel like a refugee. <laughs> right, you don't want to. Yeah. Right. But what if I don't want to be a refugee and I want to stay in the country? Ah. <clears throat> yeah, that's what we cannot control. These students are different than Ukrainian refugees. They still have homes in Nigeria to which they can return. But going back would be going backwards for them. It would be giving up on how far they've come. So they're fighting to protect their identity as students and as people worthy of respect and dignity. But as black people displaced by war, even a European one, they have lost all of that. Alexis Okeowo is a staff writer for The New Yorker, where they first wrote about foreign students in Ukraine. Act three, Aliona and Oleg. Okay, so in Russia, lots of people's relationships have become their own personal front lines. Ashley Kleek has been seeing this, talking with a bunch of young Russians who are against the war. Ashley's been reporting on the war for the Vice News Reports podcast. She used to live in Russia. One of the Russians that she's been talking to about this is Alyona, a 25-year-old protester who lives in Moscow who's been trying to make sense out of one of her oldest friendships. Because um, it's so sensitive to speak about the war in Russia right now, we have changed some of the names in this story. Here's Ashley. The friendship Alyona has been struggling with, it's with her friend Oleg. When I ask her why she's friends with him, she kind of doesn't understand the question. It's just one of the fundamental facts of her life. 
She and Oleg are friends because they've always been friends. They met when they were seven or eight in a tiny village hours east of Moscow. It's where Alyona would spend summers with her grandmother. They were outside friends, roaming around in a little pack together. So we would steal apples from the neighbors, went out to beat the grass with sticks, rode our bikes a lot, I don't know, tease the goats, stuff like that. So could you explain, like, beating the grass with sticks? Like, I just kind of, I don't totally understand. Well, you know, so when the grass grows really tall in the field, we would just go out into the field and hit the grass with our sticks. I'm sure that somewhere out in the farms where you are, children do the exact same thing. As they grew up and spread out across the country, Aliona to college, Oleg to the military academy, they stayed really close. Aliona always liked how simple and positive Oleg's outlook was. Nothing seemed to bother him. Whenever Aliona was stressed or angry about something, talking to Oleg would always make it feel like less of a big deal. When they were teenagers, Russia annexed Crimea. This was 2014. Aliona says she and Oleg and everyone they knew were watching a lot of TV. And she remembers this feeling of euphoria, that Russia was doing the right thing, defending ethnic Russians in Crimea. And it had an effect on both of them. Aliona thought about becoming a doctor in the military, and she thinks this is one reason Oleg joined the army. But then, in 2019, Aliona went on a trip to Crimea, and it totally changed her mind about what had happened. She was hitchhiking with a friend, talking to a lot of Crimeans. And the story they told was completely different from what she knew. The annexation had been awful. There was this one woman that we hitched a ride with who took us all the way to uh, Feodosia. Aliona's friend asked her about some graffiti he'd seen in Russia back in 2014 that said, Crimea is ours. And she started literally yelling at us, being like, what do you mean Crimea is yours when it's ours? Like, it belongs to the people who actually live there. And that made a really big impression on me. I came away with a sense that I had made a huge mistake and that I had been thinking really wrongly for a really long time. This was the first big crack in what Aliona had believed. When she came back from Crimea, she started going to protests against the government and hearing about how Putin came to power, about the crimes his government had committed. Her entire worldview changed, and she wanted to tell everyone. I was living with the conviction that I had just been living with my eyes closed before that. And now that I had my eyes open, I wanted everyone else in the world to open their eyes too. Including Oleg. And he listened. He didn't agree with her, but he was nice about it. Well, Oleg just said, that's fine, that's your choice. Oleg's choice was different. He believed the propaganda, what he saw on TV. So he stuck with what the government said. By the way, I reached out to Oleg for this story and didn't hear back. But he knows through Aliona that we're telling it, and he told her he's okay with it. Aliona would talk about her changing politics, and Oleg would disagree. But it never felt like a big deal. Until this year. In January, Oleg was on leave from the military, and he came through Moscow. And he had a few hours before his flight. Um, and we went down to the airline office to get his ticket, and then we hung out at my house drinking tea and talking. And that was when he told me that there was going to be a war in Ukraine. And I was like, Oleg, please, there's not going to be a war. And I started telling him the stuff from the Steven Pinker book that global violence is going down, that globally there's less and less crime, there's less murder, less war. That's what all the political scientists say. And he's just like, well, I hope you're right. And that night we said goodbye to each other, and after that it all began. February 24th, Russia invades Ukraine. 
Aliona calls Oleg, and Oleg says, yes, soldiers are being sent, but he's not on the list. Aliona immediately joins the protest in Moscow. Aliona is categorically against this war. She decides to get the now-famous phrase, Russian warship, go fuck yourself, tattooed across her ribs. It's her first tattoo. And then, in the middle of March, Oleg messages their group chat. Aliona pulls it up to read it to me. And he said, well, looks like I'm actually leaving. And um, I'm only going to have a dumb phone with me when I get there. So I'm not going to be able to send you anything over Telegram. Um, I love you all. Goodbye. And our friend was like, where exactly are they sending you? And he said, they're sending me to the hot zone. Aliona writes back, we all love you, then calls him. She wants to know exactly where he's going and what he'll be doing. And then he told me that he was probably going to go to Rostov or maybe even somewhere closer um, just to pick up the bodies of the dead, the casualties. I was like, promise me that you're not going to go fight in this war. For me, um, him going to get the bodies was okay as long as he didn't go fight. And he said, I can't promise you that. How did you, how did you feel? How was that for you? Uh, well, uh, I just completely freaked out. I was just yelling at him. I don't even remember what I was yelling. And uh, I was just screaming into my phone and he was completely silent. Aliona tries to convince him not to go. That since it's not an officially declared war, he can defect without getting in trouble. She's looking for a way out for him, but he doesn't want one. Shimmer is yelling that she was going to come to his army base and break all his fingers. By the end of the call, she's calmed down, accepted that this is what's happening. She can't change it. But that evening, as the reality of what's happening settles in, that there's no way Oleg can go to war and not harm someone, Aliona swings back into a state of impotence and rage. I got so wasted that night at a bar that I was probably screaming loud enough for everybody in the bar to hear me that my friend was going to go fight in this war and it would be better if he just died in it. Because um, if he doesn't die, he'll come back and I'll know that he's a murderer, that he's a criminal. Aliona's not sure if she ever wants to talk to him again. So many people I've talked to in Russia are going through something like this right now, having their fundamental relationships get ripped up by this war. Several of my friends no longer talk to their parents. One of my friends, whose response to this war was to threaten to burn his passport, his father called him a Nazi, and he doesn't know how he'll get over that. I was um, coming home from work and I was going up um, the escalator in the subway. I talked to Aliona a few weeks later. And, you know, I got a phone call and I didn't even suspect who it was, um, you know, and I was already kind of pissed off because I actually hate it when people call me. And then when I took out my phone and I saw that it was Oleg, I, I mean, I don't even have the words to describe what I felt. This was two weeks after he'd left, and Aliona's relieved just to hear his voice again. All that anger that she'd felt so intensely towards him, in that moment, it disappeared. I got up to the top of the escalator and I was just pacing around in the subway station asking him totally banal questions like, what are you eating? What are you drinking? How is the weather? Just completely, like, silly things. Um, how, how did he answer? What did he tell you? When I asked him how he was sleeping, he told me he wasn't sleeping well. And I was, you know, started telling him stuff like, oh, man, your sleep is so important for your mental health and you have to try to sleep well. And he just laughed at me and he was like, can you imagine how hard it is to sleep in Ukraine right now? After that call, 
they keep texting. Eventually, his unit is moved from somewhere around Kiev to Belarus. And there, he's more free to talk. They video chat every few days. During one call, Oleg shares these details about the war and a crime he's heard a Russian soldier has committed. Suddenly, their call's cut off. After that, they decide they shouldn't talk about the war because they're probably being monitored. So they stick to basic stuff. Food, weather. Talking to Aliona these past weeks has been like watching a pendulum swing back and forth. She started off with such intense feelings of fury and helplessness. She once cried on a call. But now she's swinging less. All the feelings are still there. They're just smaller. On her way to work, she does these small protests. She ties green ribbons and tree branches. She writes no war in black sharpie and her benches. And she still chats with her friend, a Russian soldier. And then the news from Bucha comes out. Hundreds of civilians have been killed. The photos, as many of you know, are awful. There are dead bodies in the streets, in gardens, fallen from bicycles. For Aliona, there was one picture in particular that made her whole body turn cold. It was of a woman's hand, lifeless. Aliona remembered the perfect manicure, one nail painted with a tiny heart. What was going through their heads that they could have done that? It's like unbearable to even think about how you're the same species as people who were capable of doing something like that. And when you when you saw when you saw it when you heard about it, did you did you think about Oleg? It's, it's just really hard to put into words. After Bucha, Aliona says, it was harder to talk to Oleg. She asked him if he was part of anything like that. He said no. But then he denied it was even happening. He tried to convince her that it was all a lie. When I asked Oleg about Bucha, he immediately was telling me that this was a, a false flag, that the Ukrainian army had done it themselves. I just kept saying and still saying that Bucha was faked and that nothing like that happened where he was either. And this, it infuriated Aliona. He had recently told her how he had heard of a soldier committing crimes against civilians. And now here he was parroting the government's propaganda. That thing she used to love about him, his refusal to be bothered by anything, it now made her sick. As Aliona tells me about this conversation, though, I could hear her softening, giving him the benefit of the doubt, the benefit of friendship. Part of her would really like to imagine that maybe Oleg doesn't even believe what he's saying to her, but that he has to say it. It's very possible that he's just, like, telling me what they tell him to tell people. Their friendship used to be so easy. Now it has the weight of a war attached to it. I don't know if it survives this. It seems like, despite all of Aliona's efforts, there's been an irreversible change. But Aliona's pushing back against it. She's holding on to this imaginary future, where Oleg will come back a different person, that he'll grow to see things more her way, less like that of a dutiful party-line soldier. Maybe go to therapy. And that's what I'm invested in. And that's why I'm continuing my relationship with him. And what if he doesn't become that kind of person? Well, I am not going to give up, or let me put it like this. If I start thinking about how the war is not going to end, how Russia is not going to retreat from Ukraine, how people are never going to face up to what they've done and acknowledge their mistakes, I'm not going to be able to function. And so I can't think that way. Aliona just got news that Oleg's been sent back into Ukraine. When he returns from the war, though, she's determined to stay his friend. And then she hopes someday, maybe in 20 or 30 years, they'll finally be able to talk about what really happened in the war. Ashley Cleek. She's a producer for Vice News Reports, which is a weekly podcast by Vice Audio, with lots of reporting on the war in Ukraine that dives deeply into people's personal stories. Say goodbye, and I don't know when 
Our program is produced today by our executive editor, Emmanuel Berry, and by Diane Wu. People put together today's show include Chris Bender, Ben Calhoun, Zoe Chase, Sean Cole, Michael Comite, Andrea Lopez Cruzado, Aviva de Kornfeld, Hannah Joffe, Walt, Rudy Lee, Seth Lynn, Tobin Lowe, Michelle Navarro, Stone Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Marisa Robertson, Texter, Elise Spiegel, Robin Semyon, Laura Sterczewski, Lily Sullivan, Christopher Spatala, and Matt Tierney. Our managing editor is Sarah Abderrahman. Our senior editor is David Kastenbaum. Russian interpretation by Bela Shayevich. Editing help from Bethel Hobte. Special thanks today to Sam Greenspan, Sam Egan, and Kate Osborne at the Vice News Reports podcast, where you can hear more of Katya's audio diaries from Kiev that we heard at the beginning of the show. Katya's dad, Volodymyr, who she talked about in the excerpts we played, died last Monday. Thanks also today to eBay Elvis Chigai Mezu, Egwim Choma Benjamin, Louisa Emmy Beck, Kevin Kaners, Katerina Eggman, Dana Balut, Helen Davidson, Anthony Kuhn, and Angela Moshe Salazar. Our website, thisamericanlife.org, where you can stream our archive of over 750 episodes for absolutely free. Also, there's videos, there's lists of favorite programs, there's tons of other stuff there. Again, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, most nights, he just sits in his easy chair, sipping a white claw, watching his favorite, Ali Wong. Now and then he talks to the television. Damn, I like your analysis, girl. Very apt. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life.